God in heaven, thank you again tonight uh, for your word. And we ask and pray, God, as we look at this very important subject of Michael standing up. We ask and pray, Lord, that you would guide us with your Holy Spirit. Help us to see Scripture like never before. Open up your word to us. Bring it to life. Uh, may we be excited. May we be prepared about this, uh, second, for the second coming of Jesus. And may we see him lifted up tonight. Please guide and lead and anoint Pastor Tim as he speaks. And open our hearts this evening to receive the message. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight's topic is when Michael stands up. It's really good news, and hopefully I'll get done in plenty of time to have a few question and answer time. When I get to question and answer, if you need to go, you can. You're not a hostage, okay? <laughs> now, we're looking at Daniel 12, 1 through 4, and verses 44 and 45 were the last moments of the king of the north. Now, Daniel 12, 1 through 4 describes how God delivers his people. And uh, so let's read 12, 1 through 4, and then we'll spend the rest of the seminar unpacking those verses. At that time, what time would that time be? We'll get into that. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered Everyone who is found written in the book. Notice that time disappears now. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Interesting, this last verse basically says... This prophecy wouldn't be understood till the end. And the fact that it's being studied more and more, and I think understood much better now, is an indicator that we are at the time of the end. Remember, that third conflict, if I'm right, Islam and Christianity in conflict happens at the time of the end, so it's only going to be understood as the events are beginning to happen. Well, it ends with God's people living with forever and ever, too. And that's not a bad ending, is it? Now, what does at that time mean? In da Daniel 11, we have a few events. And the dashes are off the left side for Daniel 11. They're off the right side for 12, because I want to show you an overlap. In Daniel 11, 44 and 45, you have tidings from the east and tidings from the north. And the king of the north gets angry and goes out to destroy and annihilate God's people. But he comes to his end. Daniel 12 says, at that time, Michael stands up. Michael's the one who watches over God's people. So the king of the north says he's going to destroy and annihilate God's people, but Michael stands up. And at that time, there's a time of trouble like there's never been. And that's parallel to the plagues in Revelation. It's the end of those plagues that the king of the north, papal-led Christianity, goes down when Jesus delivers his people. So at that time, while this stuff is happening, verses 44 and 45, Michael stands up, there's a time of trouble like there never was, and Jesus delivers his people. That's how the king of the north comes to its end. So it's kind of neat how Daniel, when he does have an overlap, instead of sequential, he overlaps it, and he gives you the clue by saying at that time, at that time, at that time. Once he's passed the overlap, he stops saying at that time. It's kind of neat how he does things. All right. Now, the question is, who is Michael, and what does it mean when he stands up? Well, let's take a look a little bit at this. Number one, Michael is the great prince in 12.1 who's watching over his people. Daniel 10.21 is Michael, your prince. In 9.25, we have a prince character, Messiah the prince, who in verse 27 confirms the covenant, making him the prince of the covenant, Daniel 11.22. What is the relationship between Messiah the prince and Michael, your prince, or Michael the great prince? Well, let's take a look. At, whoops, let's try going the right way. Joshua gives us a little interesting clue. Uh, he's talking about the commander of the Lord's army. And this commander of the Lord's army is called the 
Tsar, which is the same word for Daniel 12.1 for Michael, the great prince, the Tsar. Joshua is going out to spy on the city of Jericho right before they attack it and march around it seven times. He's going to spy on it. He goes out there and he's by himself and he meets someone out there and he whips out a sword and he says, are you for us or against us? And this being says, neither. That was different. Neither, but as commander of the Lord's army, Joshua, take off your sandal, you're on holy ground. Huh? That's the same being that talked to Moses at the burning bush. Moses, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. The interesting thing is, this is the same term used for Michael. Dr. Francis Nigel Lee, Professor Emeritus of Systematic Theology and Church History, Queensland Presbyterian Theological Seminary says, this is quite an introduction, I'm glad I don't have one that long. He said the dominant pre-medieval view was that Jesus, the second person of the triune God himself, is the angel of the Lord. This mainline traditional view of the early church was rediscovered by the Protestant Reformation and stressed also by Calvin, Luther, and later by Matthew, Henry, etc., Did you catch that the mainline traditional view of the early church is that Michael is Jesus? Now, do you know what the word Michael means? Who is like God? That's interesting. Now, if you want to check me on this one, here's an easy way to check to see what the early church and the reformers taught, especially reformers. John Calvin has a book called, a Bible called the, just went blank on it, Geneva Study Bible. Go to Daniel 12.1 in the Geneva Study Bible. The notes are by Calvin, John Calvin. You go down to the study notes and it will see, say, Michael is Jesus. Huh? I know not a lot of people say that anymore, but the early church and the reformers taught this. How did we end up with a teaching that's different by most Christians today? Who changed this understanding that Michael is Jesus? Would it surprise you to find out the papacy did it? Dr. Lee also states it was only with and after Pope Gregory the Great, who died in 604, that later scholastics such as Thomas Aquinas systematized an alternative view. Thus it became the view of the medieval church that the angel of the Lord was merely a created archangel called Michael not the divine Michael Christ as the one and only archangel and uncreated leader of all created angels, as in Daniel 12.1, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, Jude 9, and Revelation 12.7 and following. Now, I know what the history says. Early church and reformers taught this, but what does the Bible say? That should be important, right? Now, remember when God meets Moses at the burning bush? Actually, that's not exactly the way it reads. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, Moses, in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. And God said to Moses, I am whom I am. So that was the angel of the Lord. It's the angel of the Lord in the fire, but it's God in the fire, in the burning bush. That's interesting. But God said to Moses, I am who I am. Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him. So Jesus very clearly says, he's the one that Moses talked to. If that's the case, he's the same one that Joshua talked to, but that's the commander of the Lord's army, the angel of the Lord. But it said the angel of the Lord is who was there with Moses too. Now, there are other angel of the Lord Jesus type appearances. In Exodus 14, it says it was the angel of the Lord that led the children of Israel out of Egypt in the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. Except... In 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, it suggests to us that that was Jesus that led them out of Egypt in their pillar cloud and pillar fire. Um, Zechariah 3, 1 and 2 and Jude 9 has Michael 
being Jesus, the life giver. Here's another one. This one's fun. There we go. Judges 2.1. Who was it that made the covenant, gave the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai? Was it God? Yeah. But in Judges 2.1, it says it was the angel of the Lord that did it. Now, when you're thinking about the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire, it says the angel of the Lord was leading the children out of Israel in the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. But when it gets to the, Dead sea, or the Red Sea, it said it was God in the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. It's the angel of the Lord in the bush. It's God in the bush. It's the angel of the Lord in the cloud. It's God in the cloud. It's the angel of the Lord that gives the covenant. It's God that gives the covenant. This is why the early church and the reformers taught that Michael, the one who is like God, is Jesus. And the biblical evidence, and by the way, I'm just barely touching the list of angel of the Lord experiences that are really God. Samson's parents. When the father sees the angel of the Lord, he says, we've seen God, we're going to die. And he's promised no, he wouldn't. But now, let's take a look at some New Testament evidence on who Michael is. In John 5, 26, Jesus says, For the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son to have life in himself. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. It will be the voice of Jesus that raises people from the dead, right? We know that to be true. Over and over in Scripture, but watch this. Well, I guess I haven't finished this one yet. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. But in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Is it the voice of Jesus or the archangel, or are they one and the same? Early church of reformers said, yeah, they're one and the same. So I come to the conclusion that Michael is Jesus, the divine messenger, who is like God, for he is God, the second person of the Trinity or Godhead. He is not a created angel, but commander over the angels. Ark means the one over, and so he is their creator, so he's over them. He is our Messiah, the great prince of the covenant. He's also the creator and life giver, the great I am, who will raise the dead to life at his return. Now get this. Jesus has many names in the Bible, right? There's the Rose of Sharon. He's beautiful in character. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's Emmanuel, God with us. There are, he's the rock. He's the root of Jesse. Just means he comes out of the Divi- kingly Davidic line, right? He's all these things. But when Jesus shows up as Michael the archangel... That means he's commander of the Lord's army and every time he shows up that way, he's on his way to deliver his people and Satan always loses badly. And in Daniel eleven forty four and 45, the king of the north goes out to destroy and annihilate God's people. Michael, Jesus stands up and says, not on my watch, you're not. Is that good news for God's people? Mm, really good news for God's people. What does it mean when he stands up? If it's Jesus, what does it mean? Well, some of you went down to the meal. When you got done eating the meal, you got up and left, right? You ever watch somebody get upset and leave halfway through a meal? I've seen that happen before. Either you're done or you're upset. In this case, I think Jesus is both of those things. Because his people are under attack, he's kind of upset about something, but he's also done with something. Let's go to the parallel text related in Daniel 7 and 8. Remember, Daniel 7 and 8 also go from Daniel's time all the way to God's kingdom. And so there's going to be parallel stuff here. Boy, does this get interesting when we look at this. After this, I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. He's talking about Rome. It had ten horns. That's the breakup of the Roman Empire. I was considering the horns, and there was another one, a little one, coming up among them. Protestants, reformers, all taught that was the papal system, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. 
I watched till the thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. Well, the Ancient of Days would be God the Father. We know it's not Jesus because Jesus himself identifies who he is in this illustration in the Gospels. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him, the court was seated and the books were opened. I don't know if you've ever been in a courtroom. I have been in them plenty of times, thankfully never as the defendant so far. But I've been subpoenaed to court many times as a witness. When the judge comes in, everybody stands, and then the judge sits down and everybody sits down. The court is now what? In session. When the court is seated, it's now going to work. The Ancient of Days comes in, he's seated, the court is seated. There's a judgment going on here. And the books were opened. Oh, God's got record books. He doesn't necessarily have to have us there. This is going on in heaven, by the way. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. The little horn thinks he's in charge, but he doesn't know there's a heavenly court that's not going to go so well for him. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions and behold one like the Son of Man. Jesus will identify himself with this person, one like unto the Son of Man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days And they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Repeated again for emphasis in verses 26 and 27. But the court shall be seated and they shall take away his, the little horn's dominion to consume and destroy it forever. So while the little horn thinks he's in charge, there's a, judgment going on in heaven with Jesus and the Father that is judging this power and saying, nope, you're out, Jesus is in. By the way, Jesus is the true king of the north. You find that in Psalms in several places. Daniel 8. Out of one of them came a little horn, out of one of the winds, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. Well, from Rome, it's Southeast, over to Israel. Daniel's directions always work. Towards the glorious land, and it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. They say they can tell God what to do. They say God has to forgive who they say they forgive, and he can't forgive somebody if they say they're not to forgive them. Matches all that. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. That would be Jesus. And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices and he cast truth down to the ground and he did all this and prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another one said to that certain one who was speaking, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation? The giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, so he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision of the 2,300 days refers to the time of the end. Oh, that's interesting. We now have a time prophecy that will take us to the time of the end. And it's sometime in this time of the end that with the third conflict with Islam happens. 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. The cleansing of the sanctuary, the day of atonement, is considered a day of judgment. So Daniel's judgment scene and the day of atonement, 7 and 8, are similar. The cleansing of the sanctuary is recorded in Leviticus 16. It says, for on that day, the priest shall make atonement for you. 
to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Okay, so far, is this good news for God's people to be cleansed from our sins? Yeah. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you. You shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place, we're going to find out that Jesus says he becomes judge in his father's place. Jesus is the one that is ministering for us in his father's place. The imagery, the symbolism of this Old Testament sanctuary is all about how Jesus does salvation for us. He shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes, the holy garments. Then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priest and for all the people of the assembly. So this is the day of cleansing, the day of atonement. It says 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. This was an illustration on earth of what God would do in the heavenly sanctuary. Because the earthly sanctuary is a model, Exodus 25 tells us, of the one that already existed in heaven. So why would this earthly sanctuary need to be cleansed? Because as a sinner, when you come to the door of the temple, you put your hands on an animal's head and you confess your sins. Then the animal is slain, representing Jesus, the Lamb of God, dying for our sins. Every one of those sacrifices pointed forward to Jesus Christ. The blood was then taken in, that's from Adam and Eve onward, okay? The blood at the sanctuary was taken inside and sprinkled before the veil by the altar of incense. The smoke is going up and over here, and it's representing our prayers and our confession of our sins over to God. They build up in the judgment room by the judgment seat, and God takes care of them as he cleanses it on the Day of Atonement. Cleans it up. The judgment seat is also known as the mercy seat. Praise the Lord, God's judgment has mercy, right? Now, 2,300 days to the cleansing of the sanctuary, but here's the challenge. It didn't give you a starting point. There in Daniel uh, chapter 8. And so he asked for understanding and he's given nine And on 9, it's from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, brings us the Jesus, the cross, and the stoning of Stephen, and the gospel goes to the world. You start from that same time, 2,300 days, or prophetic years, until the sanctuary is cleansed, brings you to 1844. Now, there's nothing going on on the earth in 1844 because it's a sanctuary in heaven. But there are some interesting things that happen that match the Islam and Christian conflict that show that this is the right time. When Jesus dies on the cross, he says it's finished and the temple veil was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus said, behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Daniel said he shall make it desolate even until the consummation. I've been up there. I've been in the Dome of the Rock. I've been in the mosque up there. Sometimes you can get in. Sometimes you can't, depends on how politically disturbed the situation is at the moment. But I can tell you, if looks could kill, I would have died up there. Because I'm an infidel, according to the Muslims, and they don't like infidels going inside of there. Or into the mosque, in that mosque. But... They can't do much about it. There are men with machine guns and grenade launchers standing by that kill anybody that tries to kill somebody. Yeah? What's an infidel? Infidel. Yes, sir. Kafir, uh, Muslim. Uh, just if you're not a Muslim, you're an unclean infidel. Oh. Kind of like a Jew talking about a Gentile. All right? And uh, so Jesus said when he left it, behold, your house is left to you desolate. It's not this earthly sanctuary that's being cleansed, the earthly temple. It's the one in heaven because this one is going to be left desolate until the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, lots of people are wondering about the possibility of it being rebuilt. I don't believe it will be. It might be, but if it is, it's not God's temple. Why? Well, it would be blasphemy to reinstate 
the sacrificial system, to replace the blood of Jesus with the blood of animals. And so, you know, I'm not in favor of blasphemy. I'm, I actually ask some Christians, why are you excited about blasphemy? They're all excited that, you know, this is all going to happen. It may or may not be rebuilt up there, but if it is, it's not God's temple because Jesus said it would be left desolate until it consum- uh, de- desolate till he comes. Daniel says it would make it desolate even till the consummation, or in other words, when he comes again. So it's the same thing. So we're talking what's going on in a heavenly sanctuary. Now let's take a look at what's going on with Islam and Christianity. We have three conflicts, verses 25 to 28, Arab Islam and the Crusades, 29 to 39, Ottomans and the Reformation, and then the time of the end. The time of the end has to come, well, August 11, 1840, is when the Ottoman Empire becomes a protectorate of the European powers. And yes, they continued to the end of World War I, but they lost their power right there. They were the sick man of the East after that. They were relatively powerless, propped up by the Europeans. But notice, both the papacy and Islam resurge in power in the early 1900s. But look at this. The time of the end comes somewhere between the fall of the Ottomans and the rise of Islam again. It has to pop in somewhere in this window and the 2300 days brings us to the right spot. So there is historical evidence that it needed to start somewhere in there and now that you're in the time of the end, both of these powers come back for their third and final conflict. So I come to the conclusion that the judgment started in 1844 when the court was seated in Daniel 7 and 8 to judge the little horned beast and cleanse the heavenly sanctuary from sin. But if it begins when the court is seated, what happens when Jesus stands up? It's done. I don't know about you, but I've been in courtrooms when the judge got up and left. One time when he was mad at me. And you know, everything stops till the judge comes back. And the judge took a couple of lawyers out with him to talk about what they were going to do to me. That's not fun, by the way. But the judge asked me to do something illegal in the courtroom and I looked at the judge and refused. They told me to do it and I said no. According to such and such a law, no. They had to go out and find out if I was right on the laws. They came back and decided I was and I was on my own. I was free. (laughs) But But I tell you, when the judge gets up and walks out and tells their back, it's done. Does the New Testament give any evidence of a judgment that happens before Jesus' return? It does. So this matches what we find in Daniel in the Old Testament, Revelation 14. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. Okay, the judgment is operating here, right? You keep reading. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. And another angel followed saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, the great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the image of the beast, the beast in his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. So sometime before the mark of the beast stuff happens, the judgment's already started. Happening in the heavenly court. While the little horn is doing his nasty stuff, thinking he's in control, the beast, papal-led Christianity, God is saying, you think you're in control, but boy, are you sadly mistaken. So let's take a look. Who's the judge? Well, I've already told you I believe it's Jesus, but let's let Jesus himself say that. All right? John 5, 22 and 27. The Father judges no one. Could the Father judge people? Obviously, yes, he could. But he's committed all judgment to the Son and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Jesus is identifying himself as one like unto the Son of Man that goes into the Ancient of Days in the judgment. And when Jesus goes into this judgment, he becomes the judge. 
Acts 17.31 says it this way, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Who is the one raised from the dead that would be our judge? That's Jesus, obviously, right? So Jesus is our judge. So who is the accuser? Well, the Bible says it's Satan. Revelation 12.10. Now salvation, strength, and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our father day and night, has been cast down. So Satan is the accuser. Let me illustrate why we shouldn't be messing around with Satan. Have you ever been tempted and fallen to temptation? All of us have done that several times, right? Why do we keep doing that? Satan is not our friend. Let me illustrate it. Suppose you have a really fast sports car and a friend has a very fast sports car. And they tell you, let's have our timed race from here to the Reunion Tower in Dallas to a certain parking spot there. And he says, you go first. We're both going to be timed. We'll have another friend down there that'll time us as we get there. And so you take off, and you're not exactly following the speed limit. You're out to win this race. And your friend gets on his phone and calls the state police and says, describes your car. And is, is really co- he's co- coming down the interstate really fast. He's armed and he's dangerous. It's called what? Swatting. And they turn out with heavy weaponry to meet you. Now, I have a question. Your friend got you into the race, and then he calls in on you. Is he really your friend? No. Right. So Satan tempts you to sin, and as soon as you do, he says, God, the wages of sin is death. Kill him. Satan is not. You're a friend. Meanwhile, Jesus is going, don't do it, don't do it. Oh man, you did it. I'll take the penalty for that. Which one is your friend? Jesus. Why don't we get that straight? Why do we keep slipping up and following the guy that's trying to destroy us instead of the one that's trying to save us? Um, Tells us we all have a ways to go for God to change us from the inside out, doesn't it? So, the accuser of the brethren is Satan. So, we actually know a lot about this judgment. Who's the defendant? Well, you have a choice here. It can be yourself or Jesus in your place. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Huh. How many of us have to appear before his judgment seat? All of us. Hey, it's not just the sinners. It includes the Christians. Because we've all been sinners too. All right? That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. Did you just notice something a little uncomfortable? We're judged according to our works. Just said so, didn't it? Whether good or bad. Now, anybody know what the Bible says? The wages of what? Sin is death. No one is saved by works. Believe me, this is really good news, but I'm going to unpack it for you. All right? Here's another one. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Hmm. The judgment begins with who? The house of God. Why would it need to begin with us? Well, if somebody's rejected Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they've already judged themselves. The only ones who really need to be judged to see if they're really trusting in God are those that claim to be following Jesus. The rest have self-judged already. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Hey, is it possible in this world 
to be condemned for something you didn't do? Is it possible in this world to be condemned for doing the right thing? Uh huh. What about all these people that were burned at the stake? Now, when an arsonist burned my church down, I was the last known person in the building before it burned down with a for sale sign out front of it. By the way, in case you can't figure that out, that is not a good combination. I spent three or four hours with two investigators in a locked room. They were out to break me if I was not telling them the truth. By the way, if you're ever in that position, tell the truth no matter what, no matter how embarrassing it might be, because if they can get you twisted at one time, they will go after you. I walked into that room knowing I answer the truth no matter how bad it looks for me. (sighs) And uh, it worked. Eventually, they caught somebody else, and he's on trial. On the way to the courtroom, my wife, much smarter than me that day, our two daughters are going along. We homeschooled at the time, and my wife brought the girls along to have a civics class with Dad on the witness stand. (laughs) I was the lead witness. (laughs) And uh, my wife says, girls... When they put dad on the witness stand, the defense attorney may really try to make him look like a fool. You need to be ready for it. They may even blame blame him. And for the first four hours, the defense's case was their guy didn't do it, I did. That was not fun. And at the end of those four hours, it was a three-day trial. At the end of those four hours, the defense attorney walked up to the uh, judge's bench and said, I'm ready to plead guilty, but not criminally responsible. I had this instant urge to strangle that defense attorney, who had for four hours been blaming me, knowing that if he couldn't make it stick, he was going to plead guilty. I would not want to be an attorney. (sighs) Anyway, uh, so... Here's the deal. If you are wrongly charged or charged for doing the right thing and punished for doing the right thing, remember, there is a much higher court to appeal to. It's the heavenly court that will not mess it up. The earthly court may mess it up badly for you, but the earthly court will not. It gets good idea. I mean, this gets really good here, though. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So how are we saved? It said we're judged by works. How does this work out? Let me illustrate it. Good news, there's no condemnation for somebody, right? But we've all sinned. Suppose this card represents the record of my sins in those books. Your card has something written on it too. All right, your record. And if my record shows up in the judgment, the wages of sin is death, and I'm in trouble. So here's what happens. When I ask Jesus to forgive me and give my life to him, he takes my record. Those who are in Christ, he covers me with his righteousness. This is the white robe idea or the wedding garb robe of the righteousness of Jesus. He's now covered me with his righteousness. And when they call my name, he, the judge, lays down his record for mine. And I get judged according to the record that's laid down. And there are no sins in his record. There is No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This is how you can be judged according to works and come out with eternal life. Because it's Jesus' works in your place if you're trusting in him. That is wonderful good news for me. Who's the defense attorney? Well, you have a choice. You can be your own defense attorney or you can let Jesus be your defense attorney. You know, they have a saying in the courtroom. 
whoever defends themselves has a fool for an attorney. (laughs) Don't defend yourself, especially on a life and death case. And this is a life and death case. 1 John 2.1 says this, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Advocate means attorney. Jesus is our attorney if we mess up, if we trust him and ask him to forgive us. That's good news. So you can go in and say, hey, I'm better than George over here. I'm pretty good. I think I'll let my record stand. But the wage of one sin is death. You don't want to do that. You want to say, hey, I'm a sinner. Give it to Jesus. Let him take care of it for you. Then there's the law. What law is being used in this courtroom? It's Ten Commandments. James 2.10, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. How can a law that says, don't do this, don't do that, be a law of liberty? Really simple. What happens if everybody was keeping God's law? You could now believe everything you're told because nobody would ever lie. That would be especially fun during an election season. (laughs) Wouldn't it be fun if a politician couldn't lie during the election season? That would be funny. You could go and walk down any street, day or night, of any place without fear because nobody would hurt you. You would never have to lock your car or your house again because nobody would take anything. Wouldn't that be awesome? I've had some people tell me, but Tim, God's law has been done away with. It does not exist in heaven. Really? If there was one person in heaven that wasn't following God's Ten Commandment law, you'd have to start doubting what you hear, maybe locking up your golden house or whatever in the New Jerusalem, and you might have to worry about getting beat up somewhere. You see, the law of liberty actually does bring liberty when everybody's keeping it. It's going to be spectacular. That's what's going to make it heaven. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth. What's the result? Well, it's reward or punishment. Revelation 22, 12. And behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. When he stands up from the judgment, he says, hey, I'm coming. And he's bringing his reward with us according to his work. Praise the Lord. (laughs) It's the way he cleaned up our record work. For if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. So it's a positive reward if you're trusting in Jesus, and it's not so good if you're not trusting him. Starts in 1844, stops just before the plagues, according to Daniel 12.1. And at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. Revelation 22.11. Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He was unjust, let him be unjust still. He was filthy, let him be filthy still. He was righteous, let him be righteous still. He was holy, let him be holy still. When Jesus stands up at the end of that judgment, nobody changes sides afterwards. Actually, when we look at the plagues in Revelation um, tomorrow night, we're going to find out that once they begin, nobody changes sides. Because when Jesus stands up, you're either going to stay on his side or you're going to stay on the other side. Nobody changes sides. Does it do you any good to go into the courtroom and argue your case after the judge leaves? No. No. Once it's done, it's done. Judge is gone. You can go in there and talk all day long if you want. It won't do any good. But I want you to know this is really, really good news. Take a close look at this. Does anybody notice that there's a conflict of interest here, that this is a rigged court? If you're asking Jesus to take your place, let's see, Jesus is the judge, but you ask him to take your place, he's now the defendant, and he's the defense attorney. Judge, defendant, and defense attorney, all the same person. 
Would that cons- be considered a conflict of interest? Mm-hmm. It's a rigged court. If you're trusting Jesus, you cannot lose. If you're trusting yourself, you cannot win. This is the gospel in the courtroom. Now, just in case you haven't figured it out yet, look how good this is. When Jesus comes back, he's going to look at me and he's going to look at you and says, wow, I can't wait to spend eternity. You've got a perfect record. And I'm going to look at Jesus and I'm going to say, hey, Jesus, you and I both know that's your record you're looking at. But I want you to know he not only gives us his record, but he also pours out the Holy Spirit into our lives. And he will reward you according to what the Holy Spirit has done on top of what he's done. So actually the heavenly record will even look better than his, but it's all because he did it for you. Is Jesus generous or stingy? Very, very generous. He's not threatened by making other people look good. He's the one making them look good. This is why you don't want to be around Satan. You want to be around Jesus for eternity. All right? Because he'll actually be nice to be with throughout eternity. Uh, It's really, really good news when Jesus sentenced you to eternal life with him. People are, oh, judgment. That would be terrible. No, it's not. This is how Jesus sets you free for eternity. This is really, really good news. So, what do I know? 1840s, this thing begins. How long would it take Jesus to judge everybody if he wanted to do it fast? One day, yeah, maybe a couple milliseconds. (laughs) He could do it. He can speak a whole world into existence. He could do it pretty fast, all right? But he's let it go on. Sometime after this judgment begins, while he's in heaven judging, the little horn will be doing his worst on earth. And sure enough, he's back in power. And sure enough, this third conflict is developing again. And then right before it's done, right before Jesus stands up, radical Islam is destroyed as a wake-up call to the world. Then God's people come out, some of them from Islam, some of them from Christianity and every other place probably, and they follow Jesus in the Bible and they give the last warning message to the world. The judgment is about over. Jesus is about to stand up. Make sure you're trusting Jesus. So the world's attention, the warning message, And only after people make those decisions does Michael, Jesus, stand up. Jesus is not interested in surprising you at the last... Oh, sorry, you waited five seconds too long, sorry. He gets everybody's attention, brings everybody to a decision point, and then stands up. You may have loved ones that aren't trusting in him. He's going to do everything he possibly can to wake him up before he's done because he loves them more than you do. This is all such good news. But sometime at the end of the second one, but before this third conflict, you enter the time of the end. And there's your marker in just the right spot. And in heaven, yep, there's a judgment preparing for the return of Christ. On earth, the counterfeit is active. Daniel never misses. The real question is, is your name in the Lamb's book of life? Are you trusting him to take your place, to be your defense attorney? He will be your judge, but you want these other two things as well. I was presenting this in the Boise, Idaho area, large city area, and it was a cold winter night. It was about 10 degrees out. That's a cold night where we live. And uh, it wasn't in my part of the city. It was on the far side. And there was a lady there by the name of Sylvia. And we went through this presentation. It was actually on Friday night. So we did it at 5.45 and then again at 7.30 and the next presentation. At 5.45, she listens to this and she got excited about all this. She just in the seminar had learned to trust Jesus as her Lord and Savior. I have no clue if she had any kind of a church background. 
But she was really excited about what she was learning in Jesus. And she talked with one of our greeters and registration person for a while, and they ate together. And then the 7.30 meeting, on the way out, she and the registration lady talked for a little bit, and she was just sharing how, how much she'd fallen in love with Jesus. Then they both walk outside to their cars. This lady's name is Sylvia. She gets in her car, and she starts it. And Georgia, the other lady walking across the parking lot, sees Sylvia start her car, and Sylvia just kind of rubs her hands together and bows her head and prays for a little bit while the car is warming up. And Georgia thought, man, this is so neat. Georgia gets in her car and drives out the other end of the parking lot and leaves. Then the Holy Spirit starts working Georgia over. Georgia, go back and talk to Sylvia some more. Sylvia won't even be there. Go back to Sylvia. She won't be. Go back to. Okay. She does a U-turn. She goes back to the church parking lot. And Sylvia is still sitting there with her head bowed, praying. Okay. Georgia gets out of the car, walks over, knocks on the window. Sylvia does not look up. Georgia checks the door. It's not locked. She opens it. Sylvia does not look up. She reaches in and checks for a pulse, and there is none. It's when she realized that she had literally watched Sylvia die without a struggle. By the way, folks, if I could choose how to die, walking out of a church, praising God, just bow my head and die without a struggle, would be the way I'd want to do it. But Georgia pulls out her phone and calls 911. And in comes the fire department, the police, and, you know, the whole piles in. Pastor and I were doing some other things in the church. We had no clue what was going on until all the sirens start coming into the church parking lot. And a police officer comes in. And somebody's telling us what's going on in the parking lot. And the police officer wants to talk to us. He wants to know everything that's going on in the evening. And while he's questioning us, the officer from outside comes in and drops Sylvia's license plate, uh, driver's license, down on his clipboard, and he starts writing some information down. He looks over at it and goes, Sylvia, I know her. So he's been asking us questions. It's our turn to ask him a question. How do you know Sylvia? He says, well, she moved to our city uh, about two years ago from Chicago. She was a victim of a crime. I was the investigator, and we got to know each other. And by the way, he wasn't even a regular Uh, patrol policeman, he was an investigator that was just on patrol that night because his friend needed off. So this guy's not even supposed to be there, but he's there. And he says, you know, she doesn't really know very many people around here. We've kept a relationship. Uh, We actually go out to coffee every once in a while together. She's just a nice older lady, he said. He reaches in his pocket, pulls out his cell phone. He says, I think I still have her daughter's phone number in Chicago. And there it is. Hey, the officer that's not supposed to be on duty has, his, has this lady's daughter's phone number in Chicago in his pocket? That's pretty good. So the officer and the pastor decide they're going to go to the hospital because they're going to be the ones that identify her body there because she was taught, brought there and declared dead on, on arrival. So I head for home, the pastor and the Police officer head for the hospital, and Georgia heads for home. On the way home, she did a rolling stop at a stop sign. And she got stopped by a police officer. And he takes her driver's license, and he radios in, you know, a check on Georgia. The police officer and the pastor are on their way to the hospital, and they hear the call. And the police officer picks up his radio and tells his buddy, whatever you do, do not give Georgia a ticket. She's already had a really rough night. He says, okay. They tell him what happened. He gets out, walks back to the car, and Georgia rolls her window down. It's cold, and he hands it in. He says, Georgia, he says, I understand you've had a really hard night already. And with that, she just breaks down and cries. Because she hadn't told the officer about it, but he knows. She starts crying. He says, ma'am, I don't think you should drive your car home tonight. You're not in condition to be driving. He says, I want you to get out of your car, lock it up, get in the front seat with me. I'm going to be your chauffeur, and I'm going to take you home, which he did. No ticket for Georgia. I tell you this story just to say some of you are 
wondering if it's worth trusting Jesus or not. If you don't trust him, you've got to worry that you're going to die without trusting him. That's going to mean you're going to live in fear. But I'm here to tell you, you trust him. He can take care of the details like he did for Georgia. I mean, that was really taking care of the details. Why would you choose to live in fear and guilt when you could give it all to Jesus and it doesn't matter when you die because it's all going to be okay anyway? And it doesn't matter because Jesus is our judge, he's our defense attorney, and he takes our place, he cleanses our record, and judges us as if his record is ours and sentence us to eternal life as if we'd never sinned. Tell me, that's not awesome good news. Our next presentation is the worst ever time of trouble. And some of you want to know, is it pre-trib, post-trib, or mid-trib, or that kind of stuff? Well, I'll get into all of that tomorrow as we go through the time of trouble like there's never been. And some of you are going, what is he talking about? (laughs) Others of you know exactly what I'm talking about, and we'll explain it tomorrow. Uh, If you would, pull out your response envelope. Put a number, number seven up there. Yes, no, or question. The early church and the reformers taught that Michael, not a created being, commander of the angels, is a name for Jesus, the second person of the Godhead or Trinity. The early church taught, and the reformers taught, that Jesus is Michael. All right, number two, yes, no, or question mark. Jesus is the judge in a pre-return judgment that takes place in heaven. And number three, this pre-return judgment is good news for a person trusting and following Jesus. And number four, I choose to let Jesus represent me. I hope that's the choice for all of you. And then you don't need to live in fear. Uh, 9.30 Saturday morning, times of Daniel 11 and 12, the time prophecies of Daniel and how they tie everything together, but especially the 12.90 and 13.35 is what we'll be looking at. And then at 11 o'clock, unholy alliances and prophecy, uh, how uh, the political situation with the division of the politics is actually in Scripture. And I'll be showing you that. All right. Let's close with prayer, and then I'm going to take some questions. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus, for the awesome good news that he covers our sins, and that you and he have this plan to work it all for our very best good if we'll just trust, trust in you. Lord, I ask that your spirit will work in each person's life to keep us trusting in you. In Jesus' name I ask it, and I thank you. Amen. If you need to go, just go ahead and go. I'm going to start with some written questions. At what point in history will the mark of the beast be put into the law? In Revelation, well, it's sometime towards the end of this, but before Michael stands up. And this is like a whirlwind. So it's going to be a short time period right at the very end. All right? It's not in effect now, uh, but it would be right in that time period because this is the time period when the king of the north goes out to destroy and annihilate God's people. And that's the same thing that John has in Revelation, that they go out to kill and not allow buying and selling if you don't go along with the counterfeit system. So it's this time period right in here. And once Michael stands up, everybody's judgment is done. Okay. The other one is Deuteronomy, in, in Deuteronomy 6, where God says to write his laws in our forehead and our hand. Is it an important text to help us decide what's the mark of the beast? Well, in Deuteronomy 6, it's telling us definitely that we are to allow God, basically, and the new covenant is the same idea that God himself writes his law in our hearts and in our minds. 
And so, yes, that would be what God wants of us because the Holy Spirit is going to come in and change us from the inside out to bring us in the harmony. In, what, in the text, we said there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who are led by the Spirit, not by the flesh. The Holy Spirit is changing us from the inside out to bring us in the harmony. But if I reject the Holy Spirit and follow my own ways, I'm going to end up in major trouble. Romans 7 and 8, the struggle between doing good and not, uh, you know, what a wretched man I am, who will deliver me? Praise God through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's power delivers us. So, yeah, it is related because God does write his law in our hearts and in our minds and gives us the ability to follow that we wouldn't otherwise have. Does somebody else have a question? Because if nobody has questions, we get to go home early tonight. But if somebody does have questions, we'll take them. And the pastor has, or, and David both have a microphone back here, so you can be heard. And anybody watching online can hear you too. Uh-huh. Anybody have a question? Going once, going twice, we're done. Have a good night. Uh-huh.